Hello and welcome to Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. I'm your host, Pam Durant. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a very important topic that's been in the media and news for quite some time. And that is the recent use of drugs that, and medications that typically people with diabetes um, are taking, but others have discovered they're effective for losing weight. And it's been controversial because a lot of people have been taking these more what they call off-label. So they are getting doctors to prescribe them um, if they don't quote-unquote need them. Some famous people seem to have been using them and supporting their use and, you know, getting more fit and losing weight with them. And it's definitely not something to be taken lightly. Even just recently, in one of the groups, uh, a mom group that I follow, a woman came and she asked anonymously, and she's like, yeah, I know all the implications about these drugs, but how can I get some? People want to go get them. And, you know, some people gave very sound balanced advice, including myself saying, please go speak with an endocrinologist. If you think you need to lose weight, there could be other things going on. And that woman was like, yeah, I had my blood work done two years ago, which two years is, you know, a lot can happen in two years inside your body. So you don't want to just go use these drugs and start taking them without the advice of people that know. So when this subject came about some time ago, I reached out to our friends at Glucare Health Clinic based here in Dubai. They focus on diabetes. They prescribe these drugs to their patients that need them. And Ali Hashimi, the co-founder of Glucare, um, agreed to talk to me about them. So please have a listen to this very important conversation. If you're thinking to, if you have access to it, if you're thinking to buy some over the counter, or if you're thinking to go to a doctor just to get it prescribed so you can lose weight, please, please listen. Because it's not just about losing weight and looking good on the outside. You need to be healthy on the inside. And it may be the case that you don't even necessarily need these drugs, but you do need medical guidance in order to understand what to do. So a little bit more about Ali. He is the co-founder of Metabolic and Blue Care Health and an investor in early stage ventures at the intersection of health and technology with a particular focus on the application of deep learning and complex algorithms to solve challenging problems in healthcare. Ali was previously the founder of Amana Healthcare, the benchmark and fastest growing continuum of care hospital platform in the Middle East. That was acquired by Mubadala Healthcare in 2018, and it was among one of the largest deals in regional healthcare MNA. So please join me as I have this very important discussion with Ali. So, Ali, thank you so much for joining me today for this very important discussion. I really appreciate you taking your time to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So the the main reason why I wanted you and, and Glucare represented here, because I wanted to have a voice of clinical authority when it comes to talking about taking drugs for weight loss, because Earlier this year, it it came out that a lot of people were learning about this and through TikTok, actually, through social media, that if they were taking certain drugs that are were new to the market, that it would help them lose weight. And we've read a lot about it. We've seen a lot of news about it. And it was in such a high demand that it was creating a shortage for people with diabetes and people that actually need those drugs and they weren't able to find them. So let's start from the beginning. Can you give us an overview about these drugs and what they actually do in your body? Yeah, sure. So the class of drugs that we're talking about are called GLP-1 agonists. Um, It's a relatively new class of drugs. 
there were earlier versions, drugs like Sexenda, uh, which was available both in oral form and in injection form. And Sexenda already had reasonably good success. It was applied mainly in the diabetic population at first, um, but then it later got indications for weight loss. And the weight loss was, was decent, modest, compared to some of the newer drugs. But that's when people really started to catch on that this category of drugs, which are peptides, analogs of naturally occurring peptides in the body, uh, would really have interesting applications beyond just helping insulin-dependent diabetics with glycemic control. So one of the companies that was pioneering a lot of this work was Nova Nordisk, a Danish uh, pharmaceutical company, one of the biggest in the world. And they continued developing uh, new peptides, uh, the second of which was called Ozempic, which most people have now heard of. Most people haven't heard of Sixenda, but everyone's heard of Ozempic, and now everyone's heard even more about Monjaro, which is a hybrid GLP-GIP. Um, and now with these two drugs, these are dr driving massive uh, amounts of weight loss in, in patients. And both of these drugs are initially indicated for the diabetic population. And so the use case is to improve glycemic control in population of patients who have type 2 diabetes. The side effects of those drugs were weight loss initially. It wasn't the intended outcome. But what physicians and the pharma companies were observing in the patients that were taking these drugs is that, you know, there were some unintended consequences that were actually, actually beneficial also to the management of the disease overall, right? With, with weight reduction, you by default get better glycemic control and better metabolic health. And so the indications for weight loss specifically were pursued by the pharma companies and they got FDA approval for specific application for weight loss independent of the diabetic application. And so Ozempic, the same active ingredient of Ozempic, which is semaglutide, was approved as a weight loss drug and, and branded differently. It's called Wagovi. It actually goes up to a higher dose than the diabetes version, which is called Ozempic. Monjaro, which is the drug produced by Eli Lilly, does not yet have a weight loss indication, but they're expecting it. And you know, if you thought the shortage was bad today, it's going to get even worse when, when Monjaro has the official FDA nod for, for a weight loss application. How it works, um, if that's helpful uh, to, to your listeners, you know, in our bodies, we, we have these peptides. It's part of the naturally occurring pathway for metabolic control. And the pathway for metabolic control is, is not a simple one. It's very complex with a lot of enzymes and pathways and feedback loops and it's not just about insulin. Everyone's heard about insulin, but there's a lot of other things happening in the body, glucagon and other peptides that, that signal and, and, and trigger different bodily responses. But if I were to simplify it, you know, there's an organ in our body called the pancreas. The pancreas produces insulin. Insulin is like the messenger for the body when it comes to blood sugar. And so when you eat something, your blood sugar goes up. And that becomes the trigger where the pancreas sort of is hearing that. And the pancreas then responds by producing insulin. When you're insulin insensitive, your somatic cells, i.e. your muscle cells, are not hearing the signal from the pancreas. And so blood sugar is building up because the muscle cells are not pulling that blood sugar out of the bloodstream into the cells to use as energy. And so blood sugar continues to build. And the signal that the pancreas is hearing is getting louder because the blood sugar is even higher. And so it starts producing more insulin and your muscle cells are still not hearing it. It's kind of like your, your friend who listened to too much loud music when, when he was a kid and when he's older now, he can't hear you in a crowded room. Diabetics, their muscle cells are like that kid who listened to loud music in a crowded room. They can't hear the signal. So the pancreas just keeps pumping out insulin. This is what we call insulin insensitivity where the somatic cells, the muscle cells, where ultimately you want glucose to go to use as energy, they're just not hearing the signal. But insulin is also a signal for other cells in the body, i.e. your liver. And so your liver has a different response. It takes sugar out of the blood as well, but then it stores it first as glycogen, which is a easily readily available source of energy, but it also converts it into fat. And so the signals 
to the liver and to your fat cells is what causes um, people with insulin insensitivity to start gaining weight. And then you'll get the whole cascade of metabolic dysfunction. But it starts with that root insulin insensitivity. These GLPs help tune that process. It's like it's like taking your car in for a tune-up, right? If, you're, if your car is, is running poorly and the engine needs a tune-up, regardless of how good of fuel you put into the, in the fuel tank, it's just not going to run well until you get that engine tuned up again. So you can think about the GLP as like that tune-up where it helps your body become more sensitive to the insulin that's being produced. And it also helps the pancreas produce a more adequate amount of insulin. Now, GLP stands for glucagon-like peptide. And so these peptides serve specific functions in the body. So the, the drugs are actually analogs of naturally occurring substances in the human body. It's not a completely sort of foreign um, foreign body that's coming in. It's, it's part of your existing pathway. And a lot, I get a lot of questions about, you know, is it safe? Um, you know, we were injecting something that's completely foreign into the body. You know, what are the long-term consequences? The short answer is that we don't know what the long-term consequences are because the drugs haven't been around long enough. But, uh, you know, most of the medical community is not super worried about having hugely deleterious long-term consequences because it's, it's, an, it's an analog. There are short-term side effects, obviously, that most people have heard about. You've got stomach cramps and nausea and lethargy because your caloric intake has gone down. But, um, but generally speaking, these drugs are safe. They're easy to use. And that's part of the problem. It's just so easy. You know, one injection once a week and magically over the course of a few months, you lose an incredible amount of weight. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's become a problem. Um, a lot of people are, are taking these drugs off label, um, which in and of itself is not bad to use drugs off label. That happens all the time, but it, it typically is done under supervision of a physician, not done self-directed by patients walking into the pharmacy and asking for some random dose of Ozempic. Yeah. And, you know, everyone always, and it's been used in media and throughout all of our lives, everyone's looking for a magic pill to lose weight so often. Right. And now it's yeah. as if they think and that they found it or it's here, but like you said, we don't know the long-term consequences. And then when, when you talk about peptides, in addition to these, are there any other peptides that people are taking or these are the most scientifically proven ones i guess that are out there right now because i've also heard of other people taking other peptides but i don't even think that they're aware of what it is exactly that they're taking look there's 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 a very wide range of of peptides that are therapeutically useful um but i will say that the glp peptide is probably the one with the most focus in the metabolic health space but there, you know, if you if you're following any of these sort of, you know, functional medicine folks, mm -hmm. there are a lot of peptides that people use, and not just beyond metabolic health for recovery and repair. There are very very useful peptides, probably, and that's a huge universe of conversation that we could spend a few mm -hmm. podcasts yeah. on. So that's another, yeah, that's um, those are other episodes. But I just wanted to highlight that because I think when people hear peptides, it's a very loaded kind of topic as you, you just pointed out. So these are just the specific yeah. ones for, for, um, for metabolism. But there's a lot, there's a lot of newer GLPs um, in the pipeline. Um, you know, all the pharma companies have sort of jumped on the bandwagon and trying to find their own compounds because these drugs are so effective and make so much money. They're not cheap. Mm -hmm. I'm actually less concerned about uh, candidly about the long-term side effects. That's my worry as a provider uh, managing a patient population is not actually about that. My biggest worry is there's a huge population of people who are using these drugs without any supervision. And you might say, well, why does that matter? You know, why can't patients be empowered to treat themselves and, you know, take care of their own health and take drugs that are useful? And that's a fair point. But it's not as easy. It seems easy to take these drugs um, because it's a once-a-week injection. And at least in the UAE, it's pretty easy for people to just walk into a pharmacy and buy it without a prescription, which is a problem in and of itself. Not something that we're going to solve on this podcast, but it's a mm -hmm. problem. 
there's complexity in how to administer and manage patients on these drugs. So let me walk your, your audience through that. These drugs come in various doses. And there are essentially four variables that a physician needs to manage effectively. And not all physicians will be able to manage this. Even my own physicians at GlueCare, it took us some time to actually develop our own therapeutic protocols as we learned how to manage patients most effectively. No two patients are exactly the same. And so the protocol for dosing a patient is very bespoke. You start with a hypothesis of what you should, how you should manage this patient, but you have to monitor constantly and adjust. And so there's four variables. Variable number one is what's your starting dose? Typically, you start the patient on the lowest dose to see if they have any side effects. Sometimes patients that are overeager, they'll go buy a higher dose from the pharmacy, they'll start taking it, and then they'll get smashed with some pretty intense side effects, nausea, you know, stomach pains and cramps, and, and then they'll just stop taking the drug. And you know, you've just wasted a bunch of money and, and caused yourself a lot of heartache for nothing. So first variable is what's the starting dose? Second variable is how fast do you ramp up that dose? Third variable is what's the max dose that you want to get a patient to? And how long do you keep that patient on that max dose? And then the last variable is how do you titrate off of the medication at the end once you've met your goals? And that last one is the one that most people miss. People will typically just sort of, you know, they'll meet their goals and they'll say, okay, I'm going to stop taking the drug. And in that population, you see a rapid return of the cravings and the hunger that the drugs were sort of, you know, silencing when you were using the drugs. And those patients will very quickly regain the weight. So what we're seeing today, unfortunately, is that most people who are taking these drugs end up gaining the weight back because they haven't dosed properly and they haven't titrated properly. But most importantly, they haven't done the hard work of changing their behavior and their lifestyle. It's actually completely wrong to think of these drugs as the magic pill. They look like it, or the magic syringe, I should say. Um, they, they seem to be the sort of fountain of youth, magical weight loss thing that we've all dreamed of, but they're not. Without a parallel, intense effort to understand your own metabolic system, and that is not just food. It's your sleep. It's your stress. It's your activity levels. It's your mental health. Everything that we are now able to track and monitor with an increasing amount of, of detail is important in metabolic health. And someone who's on a weight loss journey needs to spend a lot of time and effort understanding those things about themselves and figuring out how to make sometimes small, sometimes larger, sustainable changes to their own behavior so that once the drug helps them lose the weight, they can keep that weight off. If you don't do that homework, when you, take the, when you come off the drugs, your cravings will return. Your poor eating habits will go back to the way they were, and you will regain the weight. Now, you might think, no problem. You know, same as taking, doing a diet. Most people are used to that yo-yo effect of losing and gaining and losing and gaining. Why is that such a big deal? Well, it is. And in the context of the drug, it's a bigger deal than in the context of doing it as a consequence of dieting. Why? Number one, the drug costs a lot of money. Monjaro is 1,700 dirhams a month. Oh, in wow. the US, it's four times that. It's $1,700 wow. a month. I didn't realize it was that much. It's not cheap. Ozempic is slightly less expensive at around a thousand dirhams a month. But in any case, if you're, if, yeah, I mean, if you're on it for a year, you're spending in the US $20,000, in the UAE 20,000 dirhams. Wow. That's not a small amount of money to burn, right? Especially if you regain the weight. So one is just the simple return on investment. You're investing in yourself, you know, $5,000, $6,000 a year on this drug. And if you regain the weight, you've literally just burned that. But there's a hidden consequence that not a lot of people are talking about. There are a few voices out there that are becoming louder. If you've listened to Peter Atia on his podcast, he's starting to talk about the 
lean muscle mass issue. In his patient population, he's noticed that two-thirds of the weight that they've lost is actually lean muscle mass, not fat mass. In our population of glue care, it's a bit better. We've only had about a third of the weight loss as lean muscle mass loss. And that's still huge. I would rather patients not lose any lean muscle mass at all, but it's kind of inevitable when you're on these drugs. You know, your caloric intake goes way down. You can't eat. Uh, You're eating one meal a day. It's essentially forced intermittent fasting and forced caloric restriction. So you become tired. Your activity levels go down. You don't have a lot of energy. But most importantly, your protein intake drops and you're not really doing a lot of exercise. And so as a consequence, you will, you know, lose lean muscle mass. Your body is essentially going to be breaking down your muscles. It's, it's, It's inevitable unless you are very deliberate about managing that. And so one of the things that we do with our patients now is put a lot of emphasis on protein intake, make sure they're getting adequate amounts of protein while they're on these drugs, which is not easy because you cannot eat. You're not hungry. It's the most bizarre feeling. Hmm. So protein intake has to stay up and resistance training, even for people who've never lifted a weight in their lives, we encourage them. You know, you don't have to necessarily go and join, you know, you know, a bodybuilder gym or anything, but there's certain things that you can and should do even at home to continue to put your body under stress so that it sends the signal to preserve muscle mass. And so why is that a big deal? Why is it a big deal to lose muscle mass? Well, you're changing your baseline metabolic function. You're actually putting yourself worse off than you were before. You know, some of your listeners might've heard the term skinny fat, These are people who don't appear fat, but because of their composition, they are. They look thin, but because they have so little skeletal muscle mass, they're actually fat in some sense. I mean, that's a very loose use of the word. Yeah, and and all of their biomarkers aren't healthy. Yeah, exactly. Correct. And so that's how you get, you know, people who appear, you know, not to be overweight or obese, but have metabolic markers that are off the charts. And so let's say somebody goes through two cycles of Ozempic or Monjaro, you know, over two years, they, they have a wedding they want to go to, and they want to fit into a dress that's a few sizes smaller. Great. Get on Monjaro for a little while. Okay. Make it, make it, make it to your target. And then you cycle, you regain the weight. Oh gosh, now it's summer season. Got to fit into my bathing suit. Do it again. Two cycles later, you've lost a huge proportion of your muscle mass. And that's not easy to regain. The fat is really easy to regain. So at the end of those two cycles, you're now maybe back at the same weight that you were before, but your composition is massively different than when you started. And that's going to put you on a much more challenging path going forward for metabolic dysfunction. It's actually paradoxically going to make you potentially more at risk for the development of type 2 diabetes. And so we have to be really careful. Uh, these drugs are amazing. They're powerful. Even though they're expensive, they're worth every penny if you use them correctly. I'm the poster child, candidly, for this. I've, sp- I've spoken about this on other podcasts, but you know, er- early in developing glue care, you know, you're an entrepreneur and building a business and it's hard. And, and it was the middle of COVID and I wasn't exercising the way I usually do. I was injured, so I couldn't play football twice a week as I usually did. And and, you know, at home, there's constantly a steady stream of delicious food that my wife prepares. So I was just, you know, like all of us in COVID, just engorging myself on delicious food and snacking. And habitually, I wasn't even thinking about it. I was just busy and lots going on, managing the kids, managing school, managing business. And it just got to a point where I looked in the mirror and I almost didn't recognize the dude that I saw. I was heavy. But more importantly, than just my weight was that I had become pre-diabetic. Oh, wow. And yeah, ironic, right? <laughs> the founder of Glucan. I have, I have so, no, well, yes, but no, but I have so many questions too, because the first thing I always ask people, if they tell me that I'm like, were you sleeping? <laughs> because the, as you know, that sleep is so important. Sleep is so critical. So, has so much to do it. I can't imagine your wife making unhealthy food at home. I mean, of course, no, when we my, were all in lockdown, it was hard, but. Yeah, my issue wasn't the quality of the food. My issue was the quantity of the food. I was just eating too much, too frequently. 
And candidly, I, I, you know, like I've always been one of those guys who's like the, the sleep warrior, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it on four hours of sleep. No problem. I can do it. But, you know, all of our thinking has changed around sleep. And, you know, I wasn't sleeping well. I was up late and then I had an alarm clock every morning, which was basically my children jumping on my bed. Right. So, mm. so I wasn't sleeping a lot. I looked at my health kit data and my average sleep last year was, or, or, or during that period was like four and a half hours a night. Not, oh, not that's enough. Not good at all. Not good. I've, I've, I've managed to increase that to about six and a half now, but still I'm trying to improve it. So I, you're correct. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't exercising. My, my stress levels were high because, you know, building a business is, is not an easy thing. And like I discussed, I was eating too much. So, so my fasting blood sugar had gone into the pre-diabetic range, but also I had a fatty liver. I had high cholesterol and I had high uric acid. Hmm. And I weighed 90, 91 kilos, which on my height was a BMI of 29.2. 30 is obese. Wow. And while I didn't, I didn't look obese, you know, I looked like I was carrying around a bit of extra weight. You know, I was, I was on, the, on the way, right? And my, and my grandfather died of complications related to type 2 diabetes. So I clearly have a family history. And so that for me was a bit of a wake-up call. I became essentially patient zero for Zone, which is our medicated weight loss program that, that uh, people are now um, subscribing to, zone.health. And because I was pre-diabetic and overweight, I was eligible for Ozempic. In fact, my insurance company even covered it, hmm. but I didn't want to go on it. So Dr. Yusuf, who's our medical director, said, Ali, you should really consider, we got to nip this in the butt. You know, you got to reverse your pre-diabetes decisively. And Ozempic can help you do that. I said, you know what? Let me not do that first. Let me first put on a CGM. And I still wear a CGM now. You can't see it, but it's down here. I, I wanted to put on a CGM and just track my own data for a while. So for about six weeks, I wore a, a CGM and I misbehaved deliberately. I ate all the foods I knew I shouldn't eat, full sugar Coca-Cola, which I probably hadn't had in you know a decade and a half, mm. you know, Snickers bars and ice cream and pancakes, you name it, I ate it. Why? Because I was interested in understanding my baseline. I was interested in understanding how my body was reacting to different things at different times. And capturing that data was a very important first step. It helped me understand the kinds of foods that I should potentially avoid or foods that I didn't want to avoid, how to eat those foods. So this is, this is more than, this is probably about two years ago where the TikTok accounts doing CGM daily weren't active yet. You know, now there's a bunch of these people that they'll eat something, they'll show you their CGM and then they'll show oh, you the graph. And it's, don't it's... get me started on that. There's <laughs> one that my, my son, so, you know, my son's type one and there was a guy yeah. on TikTok. He went around Dubai and he went to like four fast food places and ate like four burgers and fries and tracked his blood sugar. And, yeah, so there's a lot of that now. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a there's... lot of that. Back then, there was none of that, right? And people weren't even wearing CGMs really back then. There's a few, you know, body hackers mainly, right? Yeah. Who were doing that. But like, I'll give you one example. So I'm ethnically Iranian and carbs are a big part of our cultural food. A any nutritionist or dietitian or personal trainer I've ever met, you know, if you want to lose weight, the first thing they'll say is cut out anything white, you know, no mm -hmm. carbs, no breads, no, no, no rice, no sugar. Cut, cut, the, cut the carbs out, and, and that's the first step to weight loss. Okay. That might be a short-term fix, but that's not a long-term fix for most people because that's not sustainable. And, and it in takes this the region, joy. As you point Absolutely. out, you're cutting out a whole culture that's like so much beautiful food gone. You're making life not worth living, basically, yeah. right? So, <laughs> so you can't. I mean, when you, when you talk to patients, you have to have these things in mind. You have to... You know, it's not, it, this is a human path, a journey and the humanity of it is important to understand and to take into account as a clinician. It's not enough to just say, I know the answer. The answer is cut out carbs. You bad patient are not listening to me, doctor in the know. You know, that's just dumb. You know, there are certain realities. The reality is culture matters, food matters dynamic matters, right? And, and, and food is such a big part of people's family fabric that you have to be a bit more nuanced. 
and mindful about the recommendations you make. And having a CGM on a patient is an incredible way to calibrate that with some nuance. So in my case, so a very popular Iranian dish is cello kebab, right? You know, which is this massive plate with rice, like a mountain of rice, two skewers of kebab and salad. If you look at that, it's actually a pretty, it's a, it's a wholesome meal. It's not unhealthy. You got clean carbs, you got protein, some fat and protein mixed, and you got your fiber in your salad. So as, as, a, as, a, as a meal, it's actually not, a, not an unhealthy meal. It's a lot, uh, typically. Um, but I started experimenting with that because my blood sugar, when I was wearing the CGM, I saw that it was high all night long. And that's why I was gaining weight because my insulin was high all night long. And you know, my blood sugar was up in the 120s. Uh, consistently uh, throughout the evening. After so, that meal, or well, just after, at night uh, all the time. In general, in at general. night all the time. And, and and so first thing is okay. I'm eating too late. So the first thing I did, easy fix, is I started eating dinner earlier. You know, instead of at 10 p.m., 9 p.m., I was starting to eat with the kids, six, six thirty, seven. So that helped a lot. But then I started looking at so the composition of the meal. If I sit down and eat just the rice, and I look at my blood sugar response unexpected, you know, as expected, blood sugar is through the roof if I just sit and eat a mountain of rice. But then I found that if I eat the whole meal together, which is more calories, but it's a composition of calories, my blood sugar, instead of spiking like this, wasn't so bad. It would still go high, but it wasn't going as high as fast as it did with just the carbs. So I'm like, oh, interesting. Okay. So the caloric intake is an important variable. But the combination is also important. What am I eating with the carbs? So learning number one, hey, Ali, if you're going to eat carbs, don't eat it alone. Eat it with protein and fat and fiber. It'll help blunt the insulin response. Great. But then one day I was like, oh, I wonder what would happen if I eat my meal backwards. You know, let me start with the vegetables and the, and the salad. Then I'll eat the protein and the fat, the kebab. And then last, I'll eat the rice. And amazingly, my blood sugar flattened even more. Hmm. So this is not an insight that I had ever heard from anybody, ever. No nutritionist, no doctor, nobody had ever, I went to medical school. I never, like, no one had ever even raised the question, does the order in which you eat your food matter? So we started digging into this, went back to the team at GlueCare and shared that insight with the team. And we found it super interesting, but it matters. And it matters differently for different people. It's not, again, it's not one recommendation that you just tell your patients, hey, from now on, just eat all your meals backwards. You know, so it's this journey of discovery that's what's important. It's, it's analyzing your own data. And now it's becoming easier and easier for people to capture that data. And then you've got people like us who help you interpret it, right? Help you make sense of it. It's hard to make sense of it. It's hard to take your glucose data, your sleep data, your mm -hmm. food data, your and put it all together. And there's like unified insight. That's, that's where the coaches come in. And, and, and we help our patients on this sort of like curated journey of self-discovery through their own data. That journey combined with the drugs is the most powerful way to change your life. So I failed at that the first time. So I, I did six weeks of tracking and misbehaving and eating all the stuff I shouldn't eat. And then I went on the drug. I started taking Ozempic. And over four months, I lost 18 kilos. Mm. and completely reversed everything. Pre-diabetes gone. My blood sugar was back down in the low 90s on a fasting blood sugar. My cholesterol was back in the normal range. My uric acid was back in the normal range. My fatty liver disappeared. Amazing. Not just about the weight loss. Everything is improved. Amazing. Only the next summer when I started traveling with the family and going to In-N-Out and having Krispy Kreme and like, you know, all the stuff that one does when one's on holiday, my, my behaviors changed back to where they were. And I regained about half the weight mm. and my blood sugar started going back into the pre-diabetic range. Why? Because I hadn't done the homework. I had started it, but I hadn't institutionalized it. I hadn't made it part of my life. I went back to my old habits and the weight came back and I had lost muscle mass. So now my composition was worse. Right. So we're learning this stuff on the fly with me as the guinea pig. Right. So Dr. Yusuf said, Ali, let's, let's get you back on Ozempic. So I actually went back on Ozempic to go back down to the healthy 
plateau of weight that I needed to be on, but I spent a lot more energy on my habits and on my food and on my sleep. And so now I've kept the weight off, but it took me two rounds and I failed, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm not speaking hypothetically here. I've lived it. I know what it means to feel the side effects of the drug. And my side effects weren't nice. You know, I had cramps. Like sometimes I couldn't even stand up straight because my stomach was cramping so bad. It wasn't fun. It was fun to lose the, lose the weight and to see the guy in the mirror, you know, look better. It was even more fun to look at my bloods and see that all my biomarkers were better. But the greatest satisfaction comes from having a sustainable lifestyle change where I know I won't need to be dependent on, on these drugs going forward. So I think that's the message here, which is, it's not a magic bullet, right? This is not, this is not the shortcut. It's a accelerant. It's a catalyst and it's a worthwhile one, even with the cost. It's a worthwhile way to help break through that. You know, we all feel it. All of us have struggled with weight loss and it's not easy. Once you get mid forties, you're at a point in life where there's just certain constraints around you. There's work and there's kids and there's social commitments and there's all kinds of stuff that prevent you in some way of making these sort of like big changes that you need to make. And so people find it really hard to break through the brick wall. That's what the drug does. The drug helps you just smash right through those barriers and you will lose that weight. But take that as an opportunity then to reset everything else. Sleep might actually be the most important. Mm-hmm. I would put the two most important things as, as getting your sleep hygiene good and getting into an exercise routine that works for you, that includes resistance training, not cardio. I mean, cardio is important, but not for this. For skeletal muscle mass retention, resistance training is, is absolutely critical. That's true. So, and the older we get, the more important strength training is. Our metabolism is so slow. Our bodies aren't holding muscle mass in the same way at all. And that's correct. It's so very important. And I'm amazed at how many people now, because I I had the the benefit of growing up with a father and and mother that were very into health before it was cool. (laughs) We were organic in like the 70s and 80s before it was a thing. So I was in the gym from a very early age, but now I see people in their 40s and 50s like coming to the gym for the the first time, which is great because people need to to build resistance. But I had left the the gym environment for maybe 20 years and I was still healthy and active, but it wasn't until I went back again, just about a year before COVID that I was reminded of how powerful that is. Like everyone needs to be doing some kind of strength training. Yeah, but look, you know, it's um, again, just to be, there's some practical realities. The gym environment can be intimidating for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. No, no, know? not for everyone. No, they have to find what what works for them. Yeah. There's no, like you said earlier, there's no one size fits all. And I would never, like if someone hated going to the gym and they found it intimidating, I would never insist that like they do that. That's just like you say, why? The key, is, the key is really finding something that works for everyone. And I think that's why this is actually such a human undertaking. You know, GlueCare, for those of your audience that don't know, is a technology company that manifests as a diabetes clinic. You know, we have more engineers on our payroll than we have doctors, but our doctors are what you see. Our coaches are what you see. And if you look at, I mean, just browse through our Google star ratings and the comments that people leave. In, in their reviews about glue care. It's consistent. Everyone talks about the humans, how great the doctors are, how great the, the flow is. What they don't see is that a lot of that is empowered by the underlying technology that we built to make those human interactions effortless. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's not, this is not about the technology and it's not about the drugs. This is really about coaching people on a path to a more sustainably healthy life. Absolutely. And that is different for every, that's different yeah. for everybody. Like, you know, there's a, in addition to the debate around in your intro, you said these drugs that are life saving and critical for diabetics are out of stock because non-diabetics are taking them, right? There's a huge debate about whether or not people even should be allowed to have GLPs given how important they are for diabetics. You know, these shortages are causing shortages for diabetics who, who rely on these drugs. 
there's a similar argument that, that you know, in the type one community, you're certainly tuned to is, is CGMs as well. You know, should CGMs be used outside of the diabetic community? Mm-hmm. Look, I'm a big believer in the democratization of, of data and access to data across the board. Thankfully, we don't have shortages in CGMs the way that we do with uh, these drugs. But that notwithstanding, I think everyone should experience the data that comes from a CGM at least once in their life, ideally once a year. In the same way that you go for an annual checkup, I think it would be immensely useful for most people to wear a CGM for a couple of weeks every year, just to sort of track and see how their body is, is changing metabolically. Because we, we age and our body's metabolic function changes. And, and so it's an, it's an immensely useful source of data and information. So I, I believe that we're underutilizing CGMs in, in the general population for general health. They are expensive as well, unfortunately. You know, the Dexcom, which is um, a, a, probably the best device on the market, is, is expensive. The Abbott Freestyle costs about 500 dirhams a month, which is slightly less expensive, but still, it's an expense. We are starting to develop protocols and programs for the general population to go beyond just the drug, because that's the ultimate question. What happens when I come off the drug? Mm-hmm. Who's going to help me keep the weight off? And how are you going to help me do that? Well, without the continuous data tracking, you're kind of throwing darts against the wall blindly. This ultimately has to be a data-driven process. Yeah. And sorry to interrupt you, but also something else that's kind of underlying here is that people using CGMs that maybe they don't have diabetes, they have someone to go to to ask how to interpret the data. Because there's a lot of people using it and yeah, they're getting data, but they're not really sure what it means or like, oh, I just exercised and my blood sugar went up, so I should stop exercising. You know, so the the response to the body. I'm glad you raised that. They need an Um, expert to interpret it. Well, it's, 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 it's worse than that. There are companies out there, I won't name names, but there are companies out there that are artificially setting low thresholds in the way that they present the data in order to create this kind of anxiety, I think, among its users. So there's, a, there's a, an emerging company, uh, I won't say they're well-known, but we know them, that they set the, the, the line at 110. Oof. And so the patient, the patient is sort of alarmed or triggered anytime their blood sugar goes above 110. There is nowhere in any clinical guideline anywhere on the planet that says going above 110 is problematic. It's normal. And you and, won't and find anyone that has a flat line below 110 <laughs> <laughs> ever. So it's not, it's actually not just about patients themselves on an individual basis, not knowing how to interpret. There are companies out there flogging their services and flogging CGMs that are doing a disservice to patients by setting artificially low thresholds. It's normal to spike. Your body's supposed to spike. It's how it manages the spike that's important. And you're right. Mm-hmm. Having someone help you interpret that is really, really important. In, in other words, understanding the ground rules for what is healthy and what is not healthy uh, is important. And most people don't have that because most people haven't gone to medical school, right? You don't really need to go to medical school to understand this stuff, but there's a certain baseline knowledge that, that you can learn and acquire. And you know, having a coach that helps you learn that is then a skill that you'll carry with you for the rest of your life. Exactly. Um, but th- you're right. This in in the general population, this is this is an unknown. So we're doing the best that we can through educational content, spending time with folks like you on podcasts like this to help people understand and help people get excited about it too. Right. This is, has to be a self directed kind of journey yeah. of learning. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. And what? Yeah, and I think all the more reason to work with someone that understands the data because once you do understand it, as you point out, it can be so powerful for life changes and, and getting healthier. So last, maybe final question is if I think I, you know, am overweight or someone's, you know, overweight and they think they want to take some of these drugs, are there certain criteria that are better? Or, I mean, you know, maybe in the case of someone's pre-diabetic, but maybe they're not pre-diabetic, they just want to lose weight. They're, you know, A1Cs and other indicators haven't shown any signs of diabetes, but are there any kind of indicators that you look for before you accept someone into your program? Yeah. So there are guidelines 
for the use of these drugs in a clinical setting. And those guidelines are fairly straightforward. So to be eligible to take these drugs, according to the approved guidelines, you need to have a BMI of over 30 or a BMI of over 27, but with at least one comorbidity. So you could be pre-diabetic, you could have cardiovascular issues, some other issue uh, in conjunction with your weight. Now, BMI itself is not a is not a perfect measure. And there's a lot of debate about whether or not we should even use BMI. Mm-hmm. So it ultimately does come down to the discretion of the physician. So we take it a step further. We do a full body composition analysis, which is a specific machine. You might have done it in your gym where you stand on it. It sends some you know, electrical signals through your body and it helps you understand. So we'll, we'll go into a little bit more depth beyond BMI in understanding how much visceral body fat a patient has and so on. So we leave it to our physicians to make that determination on, on eligibility. But broadly speaking, that's kind of the criteria. BMI over 27, and most of us have a comorbidity. So problem comes when people who actually are not that overweight are taking the drug. You know, I had a friend message me, and, and this happens to me once a day. <laughs> it feels like almost once a day where I'll have someone call me and ask if I can get them Manjaro. And I'll say, dude, why? Why? He's like, well, you know, my friend's on it and he lost a bunch of weight and I've got a few kilos to lose. And, and I just, you know, so I spend a lot of my time convincing my own friends not to take the drug. And I tell them, look, just get back to the gym, get better sleep, get better food in your system. And you will as rapidly lose the weight. It will be a little bit more work, but you have to do that work anyway. Mm. And so there's the, the challenge is not about the eligibility criteria through a physician. The challenge is that people with just a few kilos to lose are trying to use these drugs. And in those patients, I think, is where you're seeing more of the disproportionate skeletal muscle mass loss, candidly. I don't have a scientific study to point to yet. We haven't done that publication ourselves yet. But our hypothesis is that in the patients where they're not starting off, you know, people with a BMI of 40 with massive body fat percentage, they're going to lose a ton of fat. But people who don't have a lot of fat to lose, they're probably going to lose on, on a proportional basis, more lean muscle mass. So look, it comes down to, it comes down to the physician's therapeutic call. There are guidelines. Uh, we try to stick to those guidelines. We get a lot of pressure from patients and we turn a lot of patients away. And we say, look, sorry, you're, you're just not eligible. A portion of those patients probably go and get the drug anyway mm-hmm. and, and, self, and self-dose. So it becomes this sort of weird you know, ethical dilemma. How do we help these patients most effectively? Um, so we try to navigate that as best we can, coaching patients and giving them good advice. But it's not easy. It's not easy. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time and shedding so much light on this topic. And you made it so easy. I didn't have to ask you so many questions because you were, as, as the <laughs> questions were coming to my head, you answered it before I, I even needed to ask it. So Pam, I'll tell but, you what I have, I have these quite these con- conversations almost every lot. day now. I know. My, I know. My, my so wife has, uh, my wife has stopped taking me to dinner parties because that's all her friends want to talk about. <laughs> No way. It's like, oh, wow. It's yeah. Like, all anyone wants to talk about is, is Ozempic and Monjaro. And so really? yeah, we're used to it. And it, yeah, but it's a, yeah, it's a privileged place for us to be in, right. Helping sure. educate folks about the benefits and, and the, and the consequences or dangers of these drugs. Yeah. It's, it's look, I'm glad you're doing this podcast. This is amazing. You'll have a bigger reach than we ever will have given, given the, uh, you know, the, the success of your podcast. So I hope this reaches a lot of folks. I hope uh, oh, it's helpful. Thank you. For a lot thank of you. Folks. I hope so and, too. Um, we have listeners in, in many countries, actually, I'll send you the breakdown of that, but hopefully people that are listening will take it very seriously and consult with a physician before you think to go out and get any of these drugs or you yeah, know, if anyone even, if anyone Sorry. has any questions that they want to learn more, you know, we've got a lot of resources available on our website. There's glucare.health, which is our diabetes-focused website. And we have zone.health, which is actually our, our medicated weight loss program. Um, so you can visit either of those websites. You can WhatsApp the team. The team is really responsive. If you've got any questions about whether you're eligible or whether you should take it or not, I mean, we're there as a resource to the community. 
to help people learn and understand the, the right path for them. Amazing. We'll have those links in the show notes as well so people can find them. Um, and when when we share the, the podcast as well, it will be there. So thank you so much again for your time and sharing your expertise. I really appreciate Thanks. it. Thank you. Have You're a wonderful pleasure. day. Thanks. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. I want to, again, thank Ali Hashimi from Glue Care Health for joining us for this very important discussion today. As you can see, it is not always easy and it is not one size fits all. And I really thank Ali for sharing his own personal experience with Ozempic and these these kind of drugs, because it's really important to hear the positive and negative. All we see in the media or all people might be talking about is how much weight they lost. And some people are now starting to talk about the side effects and how they feel, but not as much. And it's still, I think, very tempting for a lot of people to just go out there and, you know, everyone just wants like the silver bullet or the magic pill that's going to solve everything because we're so judged by our physical appearance. And oftentimes that's weight. And we judge ourselves heavily for how much we weigh. The, the weight, the number on the scale, it's, it's like a test. So, People are always judging themselves by this. They're always testing themselves by this number or, you know, how, how their clothes fit. And of course, we all want to look and feel great. But as Ali said, it needs proper medical advice. The other thing that is super important that I really love that Ali pointed out for us is that if you are not living a healthy lifestyle and you do not change your lifestyle, your eating habits, your exercise, your movement, if you take these drugs, then you'll gain the weight back if you're not living well. So please take that into consideration. And I encourage everyone to live well, live a healthy lifestyle, focus on the pillars of lifestyle medicine that we talk about all the time. And if you do feel after this discussion that you would, you still are in need of these medications, please go visit a qualified doctor that can fully assess you and that really understands how to follow you as you go on this journey with these medications. Thank you so much for listening.